While working overnight on call, you receive a consult for non-specific chest pain in a middle-aged male patient. However, when asked about the patient, you're told they seem sweaty and haven't been helped by any over-the-counter painkillers. Something isn't right, and you worry about cardiac pathologies. You go to assess them, perform a STAT workup, including an ECG, and while looking at the elevated ST waves, your patient codes. You start resuscitation and manage to shock the patient back into sinus rhythm. During transit to the catheterization lab, they code another four times, including in the elevator. While an ST elevation myocardial infarction, or STEMI, can take a variety of forms, it is one of the most important clinical cases that internists face. A blocked artery can start a chain reaction. They can have unfortunate outcomes for the patient. Today, our patient is having a STEMI, and you are the doctor. Welcome to The Internet Work, a podcast written by internal medicine residents meant to serve you better on the wars and on cult. Today's episode is entitled, Time is Tissue, an Approach to STEMI. All right, time for a minute physiology. Acute coronary syndromes occur when the blood flow and metabolic requirements of a given section of the heart muscle are no longer met. Often, this occurs acutely through a decrease or complete blockage of blood flow through the coronary vessels. This can lead to a spectrum of acute coronary syndromes, including unstable angina, non-ST elevation, and ST elevation myocardial infarction. Today, we will focus on the most severe acute coronary syndrome, ST elevation myocardial infarction, or STEMI. In a STEMI, the coronary event usually starts when there is a breakage of an unstable lipid plaque. Platelets are stimulated, leading to adherence to plaque and activation of the coagulation cascade. When a clot completely blocks the vessel, the tissue becomes ischemic through the entire thickness of the wall. This is called transmural ischemia. Transmural ischemia leads to a change in a wall's electrical conduction, and subsequently, ECG changes. Often, ECG changes follow a zonal pattern, consistent with the territory experiencing ischemia from the blocked vessel. Initial tissue death starts after just 15 minutes of the blockage, moving from the furthest cells away from the vessel, the endocardial tissue, to the closest, the epicardial tissue. Some of this tissue can be saved if reperfused within three to six hours, leading to the phrase time is tissue. It is important to note that these times are estimate. The actual time depends on the tissue demands, previous injuries, and collateral perfusion pathways. Now that we've reviewed the physiology, let's talk about the approach. STEMIs are often life-threatening and should be one of the first things you consider in patients presenting with chest pain. When assessing a patient with a STEMI, you should refer back to your ABCs, airway, breathing, and circulation. Get an initial set of vitals, including a glucose and ECG, 
and set up your access points, including airway management and two peripheral IVs. Chest pain is often nonspecific. When assessing patients, consider first the five life-threatening causes of chest pain, including STEMI, aortic dissection, pulmonary embolism, pneumothorax, and esophageal rupture. Often, these can be ruled out on initial history, physical exam, and investigations. Other common causes of chest pain that can appear on your differential include pericarditis, reflux, pneumonia, biliary colic, musculoskeletal pain, anxiety, or even shingles. However, when working through chest pain, you should only proceed to less acute diagnoses after you have ruled out life-threatening ones. Once you've ensured that your patient is stable, obtain a pain history as well as the pertinent findings for cardiac ischemia. With regards to pain, use OPQRST, described as onset, progression, quality, radiation, severity, and timing of their pain. Patients with a typical STEMI presentation often describe central crushing chest pain that is persistent, often radiating to the jaw, arms, or back. However, do not eliminate STEMI as a diagnosis if it doesn't follow this characteristic pattern. In fact, up to 20% of MIs can be described as painless or atypical. Risk factors for atypical chest pain include female sex, older age, or diabetes. Additionally, patients can experience GI upset, diaphoresis, shortness of breath, weakness, and malaise. Often symptoms can be confused with other conditions involving the lung, GI tract, or chest wall which can be assessed by asking if the pain is positional, palpable, or pleuritic. While GERD is often considered as part of the differential, improvement with antacids should not limit further investigations. Physical exams for STEMI are often nonspecific and should not limit further workup. Patients can present with a variety of blood pressures and heart rates. What is critical to patient assessment during a physical exam is if they are stable or not. Subsequently, the exam should focus on vital signs, peripheral perfusion, cardiac function, murmurs, and arrhythmias. If your patient shows signs of hypotension and or bradycardia, you should consider an inferior MI with right ventricular infarction and limit your use of nitroglycerin. Nitroglycerin decreases preload by venodilation, and these patients are preload dependent to maintain their cardiac output due to poor RV contractility. Let's talk about our workup. Initial testing for acute coronary syndromes will include an ECG and cardiac biomarkers, including a troponin. The ECG and troponin will allow you to categorize the type of acute coronary syndrome your patient is having, either a STEMI, non-ST acute coronary syndrome, or NSACS, or unstable angina. In patients with a STEMI, the ECG shows typical changes over time. Earliest changes in STEMI can be the presentation of hyperacute T waves, representing regional hyperkalemia, but this is often not seen due to its early presentation. Subsequently, the ST segment elevates and the leads corresponding to the region of electrical activity they are recording. To start, the J point may become elevated and the ST segment may retain its concave or a mouth in a frown shape. Next, 
the ST segment may become convex, which is a mouth in a smile shape, and the elevation will increase. These initial changes may occur very quickly with acute coronary artery occlusion. While cardiac biomarker elevation may take a few hours, after some time, the ST segment may slowly return to its isoelectric baseline, with the presence of deep Q waves, decrease in R wave amplitude, and T wave inversion, with these changes usually happening within the first one to two weeks. The Joint European and American Heart Association and the World Heart Federation committees have defined the criteria for STEMI as the following. New ST elevation at the J point in two contiguous leads with the cut point greater than one millimeter in all leads other than leads V2 to V3, where the following cut points apply. Greater than two millimeters in men greater than 40 years of age, greater than 2.5 millimeters in men less than 40 years of age, or greater than 1.5 millimeters in women regardless of age. The combination of ST elevation in certain territories combined with reciprocal changes can help you identify the territory of infarction. A handy mnemonic called PALES, standing for posterior, anterior, inferior, lateral, and septal, can help you remember the associated territories. Each letter represents a group of leads in which elevation may most commonly cause reciprocal changes in the next letter of the mnemonic. For instance, anterior ST elevation may most commonly cause inferior reciprocal changes. The exception to the rule is that lateral ST elevation may more commonly cause inferior reciprocal changes, although reciprocal septal changes can also be seen. Acute posterior wall MI can demonstrate ST elevations in leads placed over the back of the heart, leads V7 to 9, associated with reciprocal changes in the anterior leads, V1, V2, or V3. Additionally, if there is evidence of inferior wall ischemia, Right-sided leads, B3R and B4R, can be obtained to assess for possible right ventricular infarction. Diagnosis of ST elevation in the presence of a paced rhythm or previous left bundle branch block can be difficult. The most commonly used criteria is that of the Scarbosa criteria. An easy way to remember the most pertinent points of this criteria is to remember that the presence of acute transmural ischemia is represented by the relationship of the ST segment to the normal direction of the QRS complex on that lead. Concordant ST segment elevation and excessive discordant ST segment elevation would both be signs of acute transmural ischemia. You can find the details of the Scarbosa criteria as well as other important STEMI equivalents on our infographic online. In terms of blood work, cardiac troponin is the most useful markers of cardiac injury. Guidelines define that values above the 99th percentile of the upper limit of normal is defined as myocardial injury, and the injury is considered acute if there is an increase and decrease of the values. A negative troponin on presentation does not exclude injury and actually may be very common in STEMI, where the ECG will be your primary method of diagnosis. Troponin value should be repeated in three hours, preferably with a high-sensitivity assay. 
Remember while making the diagnosis to rule out other items on your differential diagnosis by ordering other appropriate investigations, such as CBC, electrolytes, chest x-ray, and INR and APTT, as well as a creatinine, especially when we are considering the use of thrombolytics or percutaneous coronary intervention, or PCI. Moving on to our treatment. As in all patients, start with your ABCs. Make sure your patient is in an acute care bed with monitoring. Obtain IV access and make sure their airway is protected. Patients with STEMI can present with cardiac arrest or a cardiogenic shock. Apply the skills learned in ACLS and try to stabilize patients with cardiogenic shock with vasopressors, diuretics, and vasodilators as needed. The goal of therapy in STEMI is reperfusion of the occluded coronary artery, either through percutaneous coronary intervention, PCI, or fibrinolytic therapy. As per guidelines, either therapy can be offered to all patients who present within 12 hours of symptom onset and to patients with ongoing ischemia if they present after 12 hours. For patients that present to a PCI-capable center, primary PCI within first medical contact is recommended within 90 minutes. Primary PCI should be conducted within 12 hours of the start of ischemic symptoms, or within 12 to 24 hours if patients have clinical or ECG evidence of ongoing ischemia. Patients should be loaded with aspirin 162 to 325 milligrams and clopidogrel 600 milligrams or ticagrelor 180 milligrams as early as possible for dual antiplatelet therapy or DAPT. Aspirin should be continued indefinitely and a second antiplatelet be continued for at least one year. Anticoagulant therapy with unfractionated heparin should also be initiated. It should be noted that cardiogenic shock in the setting of STEMI is an acute indication for PCI. For patients that present to a non-PCI-capable hospital, transfer to a PCI-capable hospital is recommended if PCI can be done within 120 minutes of first medical contact. If the time exceeds 120 minutes, fibrinolytic therapy should be provided within 30 minutes at the non-PCI-capable hospital. Dual antiplatelet therapy is recommended as the same. However, ticagrelor and prasugrel should not be used. It has not been studied in this setting. Fibrinolytic therapy is contraindicated in patients with prior intracerebral hemorrhage, intracranial neoplasm, suspected aortic dissection, or ischemic stroke within the past three months. Patients should be transferred to a PCI-capable center following fibrinolytics for further optimization and or PCI as required. Routine medical therapies that should be administered for patients who are receiving PCI or fibrinolytics should include beta blockers, ACE inhibitors, and a statin, withstanding contraindications, such as cardiogenic shock for beta blockers. Nitroglycerin can be used for ongoing chest pain, hypertension, or heart failure. Oxygen should only be used for clinically significant hypoxemia with a saturation less than 90%, as there is data showing that excessive oxygen therapy may actually increase the mortality in those with acute MI, possibly related to the generation of oxygen-free radicals. Watch for signs of right ventricle infarction, as it occurs in about one-third of patients with inferior STEMI and is associated with high mortality. 
This should be identified in all inferior STEMI patients. And the clinical triad of hypotension, jugular venous distension, and clear lung fields is classic, with one millimeter elevation in lead V1 and V4R. Nitroglycerin and diuretics should be avoided in this case, as these patients are preload dependent. Serious complications after STEMI include mitral regurgitation, LV aneurysm, ventricular septal rupture, and LV free wall rupture, and the latter two require urgent surgical intervention. Ventricular arrhythmias are common, and treatment is as per ACLS guidelines. ICD therapy is indicated before hospital discharge in patients who develop sustained VT or VF more than 48 hours after STEMI in the absence of a reversible cause. An echocardiogram is also indicated in patients before discharge, especially for the measurement of left ventricular ejection fraction, or LVEF. In patients with an LVEF less than 40%, an echocardiogram should be completed again after 40 days for re-evaluation. If the repeat LVEF is less than 35%, and the patient has NYHA class 2 or 3 symptoms, or if the patient's LVEF is less than 30%, then you have an indication for ICD placement. Acutely after a STEMI, if the LVEF is less than 40%, and patients have heart failure symptoms or diabetes, a mineralocorticoid receptor agonist, such as spironolactone or a plerinone, would also be indicated for medical management. Last but not least, patients need management of risk factors before discharge for secondary prevention. Hypertension, diabetes, and other comorbidities must be adequately treated. Smoking sensation is important. Lifestyle changes such as improving nutrition, physical activity, mental health, and cardiac rehabilitation programs, where available, are also recommended. Time for a Medicine Minute. In 2009, the PLATO trial published in the New England Journal of Medicine compared ticagrelor and clopidogrel in patients with ACS, 37.5% of which came in with a STEMI, and noted that ticagrelor had a reduced rate of cardiovascular death, MI, and stroke, without a significant increase in the rate of major bleeding. Furthermore, there was a decreased all-cause mortality in patients on ticagrelor at 4.5% compared to 5.9% with clopidogrel. However, it is important to note that patients on ticagrelor had higher amounts of non-cabbage-related bleeding, dyspnea, and bradycardia. However, there wasn't a significant difference in major bleeding in the two groups of patients. Thank you for listening to today's episode entitled Time as Tissue and Approach to STEMI. This episode was written by Dr. Varen Srivastav and Dr. William Kennedy, internal medicine residents. This episode was reviewed by Dr. Jonathan Dean, general internal medicine, and Dr. Andrea Lavoie, cardiology. This episode was recorded by Allison Lai with sound editing by Nathan Dubnik. The Internet Work series was created by Allison Lai and is executively produced by Allison Lai, Leah Karanopoulos, and Zara Morali. Theme song by Lakshma Vizantha Mohan. 
As always, we have an associated infographic and resources on our website at www.theinternetwork.com. If you like this podcast, please like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening and we hope to see you again soon.